0: Well, over the past number of weeks, I've been watching the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War that's now available to stream on Netflix. War in Vietnam was certainly one of the most tragic, one of the most prolonged conflicts in the 20th century. It was a war that spanned the terms of three American presidents, a war that divided the nation along ideological lines, and a war that played on the consciences of many of those who were drafted into the military and sent into the jungles of Vietnam to fight the threat of global communism. When America first began to flex its muscle in Vietnam under President Kennedy, it was thought that the communist threat could be quickly and easily contained. But as events unfolded in the mid-1960s and beyond, America found herself in an increasingly unpopular war that couldn't possibly be won. The war dragged on until 1975 at the cost of 58,000 American lives, 250,000 South Vietnamese lives, until the last of the Americans were finally evacuated and Saigon fell to the communist regime. War in Vietnam traumatized the nation. It traumatized a generation. And today as we look into God's inspired word, we will be reminded of another war that is being fought even as we speak and even in the very room where we are now sitting. This war started long ago when an angel named Lucifer swelled up with pride and rebelled against the Creator along with one-third of the angelic host. The conflict intensified in the Garden of Eden when Lucifer tempted the first human couple to join his rebellion against the Lord God, and in so doing plunged the entire human race into a state of spiritual ruin. And as we read through the record of the Bible and examine the annals of human history, we see clear evidence of this spiritual battle, even though most of it is not visible directly to our human eye. Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, as we open up the book of Daniel and enter into the home stretch of this sermon series, we are in a chapter of God's word that pulls back the curtain just a little bit and gives us a glimpse into the nature and the outcome of this spiritual battle. And the good news is that unlike the war in Vietnam, which couldn't be won, this is a war that cannot be lost. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to open to Daniel 10. Listen carefully as I read this entire chapter from God's holy and inspired word. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus of Persia, word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. The word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who are with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he'd spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make, make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lip then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me. No breath is left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a, of a man, touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do do you know why I've come again, come to you, but now I, I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these, except for Michael, your prince. Word of the Lord. Up until this point in the book of Daniel, each one of the chapters has been more or less a self-contained unit of narrative or prophecy. But now in the final chapters of the book, we come to a concluding vision that spans three entire chapters, by far the longest and the most detailed section of this book. Here in the concluding vision, chapter 10 functions as an introduction, chapter 11 gives us most of the prophetic details, and chapter 12 is written as a postscript. And so with God's help, we're going to examine this final vision over the next few weeks, beginning this morning with the introduction in chapter 10. The introduction to the vision, chapter 10, prepares us for what's about to be revealed to Daniel, but it doesn't give us many details other than a single summary statement in verse 1, which I have taken as the title for the message this morning. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. Whatever fine details this vision might contain, we know from verse 1, it will center on the theme of conflict, and we see the evidence of this conflict throughout the remaining verses. Now wars, as we all know, are traumatic events, and the great conflict being introduced to us here in this chapter is no exception. Indeed, as we'll soon discover, even the greatest of God's servants are not immune from the scars and the wounds of the battlefield one sense, the prophet Daniel has been a prisoner of war for most of his life, kidnapped from his family at a young age, forced to live in a foreign land under the thumb of a pagan oppressor. Daniel came to live in Babylon when he was a teenager, but now he's an old man, probably close to 90 years old at this point in the narrative. Daniel's loyalty to God has been severely tested over the course of his life, but through it all, he has not wavered or cracked under pressure, and God has graciously preserved his life and given him a position of great authority and power in the kingdom. Now in the twilight years of his life, after faithfully fulfilling his duty to both God and king, we might think that Daniel would finish out his days in peace and comfort. But here in chapter 10, we encounter a battle-worn soldier in a deep state of trauma and grief, knee-deep in the spiritual battle. Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. We're not told specifically here in our text why Daniel was in such a state of spiritual anguish, but the time marker in verse 1 gives us a good clue. These events are taking place in the third year of King Cyrus, about two years after Daniel has received the prophecy of the 70 weeks that we considered last time. And since receiving that very difficult prophecy, a few notable events have happened in the kingdom. Recall from chapter 9 that Daniel was praying for the Lord to fulfill his promises, to bring the 70-year exile to an end as was foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. We know from historical records that God's answer to Daniel's prayer came very quickly. In the first year of Cyrus's reign, the same year that Daniel prayed that great prayer, the year 539 B.C., King Cyrus issued a remarkable edict that allowed the Jewish exiles to return back to their homeland, thus bringing the 70-year exile to a formal end, and at the same time beginning a new period of suffering and persecution that would not last 70 years, but 70 years times 7. And as we discussed last time, this is a symbolic period of time that would culminate with the coming of the Messiah, the inauguration of the new covenant, and the destruction of the entire sacrificial system. Daniel and the Jewish people were expecting a new age of blessing and prosperity to dawn. But through the visions in the second half of this book, God has been showing Daniel that the end of exile does not mean the end of suffering. God has shown him through the vision of the beasts that one evil kingdom will rise up after another and another and that this pattern of evil will go on for some time before God definitively intervenes. He shown Daniel through the vision of 70 weeks that great trial and tribulation would be experienced by God's people and that the ultimate day of Jubilee was still from his perspective a long way in the future. God wanted Daniel to understand that our expectations for blessing do not always match up with God's sovereign time frame. That trouble and trial and persecution is often the lot of God's people in a world like ours that has fallen and broken because of sin. God has been preparing His people for discouraging times ahead, but now in chapter 10, the reality of discouragement is starting to sink in. Just think about it. Two years have now passed since the exiles went home with Ezra as their leader, and the news of their experience back in the land of Israel is starting to make its way across the miles back into Persia. You can almost imagine the spirit, the emotional turmoil of Daniel, too old at this point in his life to make the long journey back home, but with God's people in spirit and with God's people in prayer. And then the news starts to come back to Daniel. Things aren't going very well back in Israel. Powerful enemies are opposing the Jews at every turn. They're hindering the efforts to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. Foundation for the new temple was poured almost right away, but the building project has since been stopped by royal edict. And although Daniel doesn't know it yet, the construction of the temple will not recommence for another 15 years. The walls of Jerusalem will not be rebuilt until the time of Nehemiah. If Daniel and the Jews were expecting the dawn of a messianic age, a painful reality is starting to set in. And the vision of the beasts and the vision of the weeks is starting to be fulfilled before their very eyes. Now Daniel is doubtless broken hearted by what's happening back in Israel. But also heartbreaking for this man is the fact that many of his Jewish brothers and sisters show absolutely no interest in going back home at all. When given the opportunity to return to the promised land, many of the Jews preferred instead to remain in Persian exile, and we see the bitter fruit of that disobedience in the book of Esther. People who shouldn't have been in the land of Persia at all, they should have been back in their own land. Now the exile might be over in a formal sense, but things are not looking good here for the people of God, and Daniel is feeling the pain of discouragement. He is feeling the trauma of being in the middle of this great conflict. And so this chapter opens with God's servant in a state of mourning and grief. Three weeks of nothing but bread and water. No luxuries. And all of this during the season of Passover, which should have been the most joyful and hopeful time of the year. The commemoration of God's great act of deliverance. Brothers and sisters, if nothing else, this chapter reminds us that life in a broken and a fallen world is sometimes very hard and very painful. As Christians, we know that God is meticulously sovereign. We know that God is working out His purposes. We know that God's kingdom will ultimately triumph over evil. We know that we're on the right side of history, no matter what the media might say, but that knowledge does not eliminate always the pain of the present reality of suffering. God warned Daniel these types of things were going to happen. But when Daniel sees them happening with his own eyes, when he experiences them firsthand, it causes him to mourn, to grieve. You know, friends, some of us were taught in Sunday school that once you become a Christian, all of your troubles suddenly fade away. As that popular old hymn puts it, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Nothing could be further from the truth. War traumatizes those who step on the battlefield. In that documentary about Vietnam, some of the veterans who had been in first-hand combat could not even speak of their experience without trembling and weeping. And that's decades after the fact. War traumatizes the best and the bravest of men. And in the same way, the experience of spiritual warfare will have an effect in your life and in my life. We Christians are not happy all the day. Some days we feel very discouraged. Some days we feel like giving up. Some days we feel like staying in bed. That's true of God's people in every age. Moses experienced it when he led a stubborn people through the wilderness. Elijah experienced it when Jezebel was trying to murder him. David experienced it when his son betrayed him. Jeremiah experienced it when no one would listen to his preaching. John the Baptist experienced it when Jesus did not fit his expectations. Even Jesus experienced it when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed to the Father that the cup might somehow pass. Christian life is war. and Those who experience warfare will not be unaffected in the heat of the battle. Suppose the bad news we all need to come to grips with in this text is that you and I will experience hardship and difficult things in life as we seek to follow Jesus and to be faithful to the Word. Things will not always go the way we anticipated. Life will not always turn out the way that we hoped. There will be many bumps and many setbacks along the way. But the good news we need to embrace this morning is that God doesn't expect us to face the trials and the discouragements of this life all by our, ourselves. Here in this text, we see a man deeply discouraged by current events, but that didn't, discouragement didn't drive him to despair. No, friends, it drove him to prayer. And that's the pattern that we see over and over again in the life of this man named Daniel. A man who faced every challenge and every trial in the knowledge that God is there. That God cares. How wonderful to know, Christians, we can always cast our cares and burdens upon the Lord our God, knowing that He cares for us, knowing that He is only ever a prayer away love what that great Christian soldier, the Apostle Paul, wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians, a man who is intimately familiar with hardship and discouragement. Paul says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You know, friends, in a very real sense, that is not only the testimony of the Apostle Paul. It is a testimony of every true believer. It was a testimony of Daniel and his generation, and it must be the testimony of you and me and ours. When Daniel faced the pain of discouraging situations and circumstances, he was not driven to denial about his circumstances, nor was he driven to despair as though God had had abandoned him. Daniel was driven to prayer. And may it be so for you and for me, whenever God, in his providence, ordains us to walk through difficult trials in life. Fear not, he says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you won't be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In the opening verses of this chapter, we see the traumatic nature of spiritual warfare, but as we move through the remaining verses, the curtain of history is pulled back a little bit and we discover with the prophet Daniel that there is far more than meets the eye when it comes to this great spiritual conflict. If verses 1-3 to teach us something about the trauma of spiritual battle, verses 4-27 to give us insight into the various participants engaged in the fight. The first, by far the most important participant in the spiritual battle is not mentioned directly here in the text, but his presence and his power dominate this entire book. Way back in the introductory sermon to this series, I mentioned that the hero of this book is not the prophet Daniel, however prominent he may be. The true hero of this biblical book is Daniel's God. From chapter 1 to chapter 12, Yahweh shows himself to be the hero, the sovereign king, the sovereign Lord who reigns supreme over every earthly and heavenly power. Over and over again we've seen how God is mighty to save. He's the God who rescues Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace. He is the God who rescues Daniel from the lion's den. God has saved Daniel time and time again and in so doing he has shown himself to be the great warrior who fights on behalf of his people who acts in all circumstances for the glory of his name. Back in chapter 7 we saw the majestic picture of God the Father and of God the Son the Ancient of Days seated upon his throne the Son of Man coming in the clouds as the King of all peoples and nations and languages. Moses was right. The Lord is a man of war and he fights for his people with a mighty arm that no army can stop. But at the same time, we have seen in this book that Yahweh is a king who cares deeply about his own people. He is not only the sovereign and transcendent God, he is also a loving father who deals gently and tenderly with his children. We have seen in these verses how God is always available. How he delights to listen and to answer the prayers of the righteous. Now Daniel we've come to know was such a righteous man. He knew the mighty power and authority of God. But Daniel also knew the love and compassion of God because Daniel intentionally fostered a relationship with God. Praying to God in the good times. Seeking God's face during the difficult times. Daniel was always quick to commune with the Heavenly Father. And as Daniel speaks earnestly to his God in prayer, we have come to see how the Lord responds to Daniel by reassuring him of his covenant love and faithfulness. recall back in chapter 9, the angel Gabriel told Daniel that he was greatly loved by God. And now in chapter 10, we find that same affirmation given twice more, once in verse 11 and a second time in verse 19. Be encouraged this morning, Christian. God has not left you to fight in this great battle through your own human strength or through your own limited resources. He is the warrior king. He is with us in the battle, never leaving His people, never forsaking His people, always available when we seek Him in prayer. Far and away, Yahweh is the most important warrior in this great conflict. But secondly, we see here in our text the important but subordinate role played by the angels. A spiritual reality that is mysterious and almost completely hidden from our eyes. You know, friends, one of the great contributions that this chapter makes to our understanding of biblical theology is to remind us that far more is happening in this world than we can see with our eyes that we can perceive with our human senses. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch Reformed theologian and former Prime Minister of the Netherlands, once wrote that if the curtains were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. You know, friends, behind the events that we read about in the newspaper, behind the governments and the institutions and the authorities in this world, are real spiritual forces. Some of them good. Some of them evil. But either way, forces that are intimately involved in this great conflict. We can see the evidence of spiritual battle in our lives. We can see the evidence in the world around us. And like Daniel, we experience the trauma of life in a fallen world. But there is an aspect to this battle that is invisible to human eyes. And it includes the activity of the angels and the demons. Now what's being described here in the 10th chapter of Daniel should not come as a shock to the Christian believer. For the Apostle Paul has told us about this reality in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, we read read it earlier in the service. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Peter says something similar in his first epistle, teaching us that we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. While some people here in our Western culture might think that it is foolish and childish for a modern, well-educated person to believe in angels and demons, we know better as Christian men and women. These spiritual beings are as real as the nose on your face, and the fact that we cannot normally see them with our eyes or hear them with our ears doesn't make one bit of difference. They are part of God's creation, and God's Word clearly testifies to their existence. And so, as the scriptures say, let God be true and every man a liar. In his masterful book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis speaks about two equal and opposite errors we often make when it comes to this subject of angels and demons. One error, says Lewis, is to disbelieve in their existence, the other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And goes on to say that the demons are equally pleased by both of these errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. I'm of the opinion that C.S. Lewis is exactly right. When it comes to this subject of spiritual warfare, it is all too easy for us to run off the rails in one of these two directions, either to downplay or deny the existence of demons or else to foster an unhealthy obsession with them where we see the demons hiding behind every rock and tree. When I was a student studying biology at the University of Guelph, I took a philosophy course with the atheist professor Chris DiCarlo. And I remember Dr. DiCarlo showing us a video in class of some fringe charismatic group that was convinced that cancer is the result of demonic possession and that cancer could be treated through exorcism and not through surgery and chemotherapy. And as you might imagine, Dr. DiCarlo relished the opportunity to publicly mock Christianity in class and to show what he considered to be the stupidity of our faith. There is indeed, friends, a great deal of stupidity when it comes to the subject of the demons, but the lunatic fringe does not in any way invalidate the truth of the word. And we as Christian believers should not be embarrassed or ashamed by anything that is taught in the Bible. In fact, we would be just as foolish, just as ignorant not to believe in the unseen realm and not to take it seriously. Back in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, we read of one historical occasion when the Jewish city of Dothan was surrounded by the Syrian army and just when it appeared that all hope for victory was lost, the prophet Elijah prayed and he asked that the eyes of his trembling servant would be opened. The text goes on to say the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There is Christian friends a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual realm that you and I cannot normally see and we believe in that realm on the authority of God's word even if we never see it with our physical eyes. You know, in a church like this one that comes out of the conservative Baptist and Reformed tradition, I'm not overly concerned that we are nurturing an unhealthy or dangerous obsession with the demon. To the contrary, if we Baptists lean towards one of these two extremes, I would say that we are far more prone to go in the opposite direction and to forget that we're even in a spiritual battle at all. And perhaps this morning, the prayer we need to hear the most is the one Elisha prayed long ago for that young man. Lord. Open their eyes. That's the function of this chapter in the Word of God. It confronts us with spiritual realities we don't normally see. It reminds us about a spiritual battle that we are often prone to forget. And so here in these verses, the Lord pulls back the curtain. He gives us a glimpse of the armies and the chariots as He did long ago for that young companion of Elisha. In the heat of the spiritual battle, Daniel needed encouragement. Daniel needed to know at this moment that he wasn't in the battle alone. He needed the assurance that God was fulfilling his sovereign purposes on earth even when everything appeared to be going wrong. In response to his earnest fasting and prayer and mourning, God once again stoops down in loving kindness and he sends his angel to Daniel just as he'd done in the previous chapter. Now, this angel who is described for us in verses five and six has been the subject of a great deal of discussion and debate with some believers convinced that this was no ordinary angel, but an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, that this is the son of God, the eternal son appearing in human form or in physical form. Now the reason why some Christians have come to that conclusion is because of the way that this messenger is described. He's described as wearing a linen garment and having a face like lightning and eyes like fire, arms and legs like bronze and a voice like the sound of a multitude. And if you know your Bible well, that will immediately remind you of the description in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, where the risen and glorified Jesus Christ appears to John on the Isle of Patmos and where John reacts in precisely the same way that Daniel reacted by falling flat on his face in terror. You know, friends, I have to admit, if all that we had was that physical description, I too would be inclined to see this as an appearance of Christ. But as we'll soon discover, there is evidence in the verses that follow that make that conclusion very doubtful. For example, in verse 13, the heavenly messenger tells Daniel that he was delayed from coming to him for 21 days and then adds that he needed the assistance of another angel named Michael to overcome a hostile demonic power. I'm not sure what you make of that, friends, but personally, I find it almost impossible to believe that the Son of God would ever need help from one of his creatures or that the Almighty God would ever be hindered, that he would ever be delayed by any hostile force in the entire universe. And so in my estimation, the evidence suggests we are not dealing here with an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Rather, we are encountering here a high-ranking angel who reflects the glory of God, quite likely the angel Gabriel, who we've met already in previous chapters. Once again, God has graciously responded to Daniel's prayer by dispatching an angel. And what's remarkable here in these verses is the way that Daniel and his companions react to the sudden and unexpected appearance of this being. Verse 7, actually a verse reminiscent of the conversion narrative of the Apostle Paul. Daniel's companions run away in fear, and we read that Daniel himself lost all strength and fell face down to the ground. May I just say here by way of observation that in in Scripture, this is the universal response of all those who are confronted with a manifestation of divine glory. And even it would seem when that glory is dimly reflected by a messenger who has been in the presence of God. This scene reminds us we serve an awesome God. We serve a holy God. This is not a God to trifle with. This is not a God to treat lightly and casually. Our God is a consuming fire. And friends, that is why it is right for us as the people of God to have a holy reverence and respect for God. Yes, He is our Father. Yes, He is the friend of sinners. But don't forget, He is also your Master. He is your Lord. He is the sovereign King of the earth. In this biblical scene, Daniel, like so many others in the Bible, is totally overcome and undone by a little glimpse of the majesty and glory of God, so much so, he is immediately knocked to the ground and rendered unconscious. And everything that we read about this angel points towards the glory of God. The linen garment, for example, is a priestly garment that speaks of God's forgiveness and grace. And the lightning around his face speaks of God's power and might. The fiery eyes and the bronze arms and and legs remind us that God is a righteous judge and that His wrath comes against the wicked. And the strong voice shows us that God creates and destroys with nothing more than a word uttered from His mouth. Everything about this angel reflects the majestic character of God and Daniel is totally undone by what he sees. Now, by Daniel's reaction to this angel, we might assume that his appearance has made a bad situation even worse. But as we continue to read in the following verses, it becomes very evident this angel has not been sent to terrify Daniel, but to strengthen him and encourage him. Three times in the remaining verses, we read of this angel touching Daniel, and in touching him and speaking graciously to him, gives him the strength that is needed to receive the vision that will come in the next chapter very clearly this angel is god's gracious response to daniel's prayer very clearly this angel is directly involved in the great spiritual conflict you know friends the bible doesn't teach us a great deal about angels nor does it answer all of the questions and the curiosities that we might have about these majestic creatures But in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And later on in Hebrews 13, we are instructed to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing, the text says, some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. Now, friends, I have no desire to be sensational this morning. I have no desire to probe irreverently into mysteries that God has not revealed to us. But I do believe with all of my heart that angels are real creatures. And I do believe that God still sends his angels to minister to us as as his people, at times even to protect us and our families and our churches from great spiritual and physical harm. I think it is quite possible that sitting with us in this room today are angels that we cannot see. Here in this chapter, we read about two of God's angels, one who's not named specifically and a second one by the name of Michael, who appears elsewhere in the Bible. In the little book of Jude in the New Testament, Michael is called an archangel. That simply means a chief angel. And if you go one one, uh, book further into the book of Revelation, we read that Michael is the leader of the angelic host, that he is one of the main opponents of the dragon in his fight against the church. The book of Daniel mentions this angel Michael several times and the text suggests here in chapter 10 and again in chapter 12 verse 1 that Michael was entrusted by God with territorial responsibilities. They had been given charge over the covenant people of God. And just as Michael seems to have territorial responsibility as a high-ranking general in God's army, so it would appear that de- there are demons who have similar responsibilities within the kingdom of darkness. I don't know if you noticed it when we read through the text earlier, but two high-ranking demons are mentioned here in Daniel 10. One is referred to as the prince of Persia. The second one is referred to as the prince of Greece. And these titles, along with the rest of the teaching in the chapter, suggest that the angelic armies, whether good or evil, are regimented bodies with high-ranking officers and with low-ranking foot soldiers, and also that certain angels and demons have been assigned to specific territories and perhaps even to specific institutions. When we turn on the evening news and we read about wickedness in human governments, whether here in Canada... Or elsewhere in the world, when we read about wicked institutions like Planned Parenthood, when we read about rampant persecution in certain parts of the world, this text helps us to see there is far more than meets the eye. There is a spiritual battle that rages around us with hostile forces that want to kill and destroy. I don't think we can be overly dogmatic about territorial demons. I certainly think that this is one of the areas where unbalanced Christians in the church have gone way off the deep end by claiming to know the names of these demons, by attempting to bind them in Jesus' name and to cast them out and to go to war with them. Believe it or not, books have been written on this subject from very well-educated people. Entire ministries have been built up around this very obscure and uncertain teaching in God's Word. And I don't think that is wise or spiritual in any way. If you think it's a good idea to go out and pick a fight with a territorial demon, you may very well end up like one of the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19. And if you don't know that story and you want to go out and fight the demons, I suggest that you read the story before you give it a try. All that I would say to you about these types of ministries is that nowhere in this chapter is Daniel ever commanded to go to war against territorial demons. Daniel is only informed about the war that is being fought by the angels. Furthermore, We would do well to remember the verse that our brother Terry preached on last week from Colossians 2.15 and to be reminded that our Lord Jesus came into this world to destroy the works of the devil, to disarm the rulers and the authorities and to put those authorities to open shame. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not forget something incredible has taken place in between the time when Daniel lived and the time when we now live. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the fulfillment of that ancient promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And through His death and His resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated the devil and all of His demons. And though they are still very much active in our world today, we must not forget they are defeated foes. They are under the feet of our Savior. They are damned to hell forever. Jesus Christ, our warrior king, has bound Satan so that according to Revelation 20, he can no longer deceive the nations. And as a result of that binding, the gospel is now going out into all of the world. And as we, and as we speak, the house of the strong man is being plundered as God's chosen ones are being brought into the family of God. Just think about this. If Daniel way back in the old covenant times was encouraged to know that Michael and the angels were keeping the demons at bay, that the worst that these demons could do was delay things for three weeks. How much more encouraged should we be on this side of the cross to know that Jesus Christ has defeated them once and for all and that they are all without exception destined for the lake of fire? Well, friends, we've considered the various participants in the great spiritual conflict, but there is one soldier left on the field for us to consider. And that is the Christian believer as represented in the text by Daniel. It is not your job, Christian, to go out and pick a fight with the demons, but it is our job to follow the lead of our brother Daniel by praying fervently for the advance of God's kingdom and by persevering patiently in our faith. Every morning when we wake up and get out of bed, it's our responsibility to put on the armor God has provided. It is our responsibility as Christians to take a stand on the truth of God's Word in this evil and wicked generation in which we live. In Ephesians 6, that great passage about spiritual armor, you'll notice the last thing that Paul mentions is our duty as Christians to pray at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication and to persevere In making supplication for the saints. That's what Daniel models so beautifully here in this text. And we learn that prayer is a means of grace that God has provided in our ongoing struggle against the world. And the flesh and the devil. So important Christians to remember as John Piper has so memorably put it. That prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare and not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts down in the trench. When we pray individually, when we gather together and pray corporately, we must recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. We are still involved in this great conflict, even though the Lord Jesus has won the decisive battle on the cross. We're confronted again here with that tension that I bring up time and time again, the tension between the now of God's kingdom and the not yet of God's kingdom. We must, as the people of God in this world, recognize that prayer is a vital means for calling in supplies for the battlefield and that prayer supports and reinforces our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world as they endure persecution, as they earnestly contend for the faith. And so, Christian friends, in the light of all that we've learned today about the great conflict, let us be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath of your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.